Locked On NBA. The biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in Brooklyn to speak with Josh Bass of Locked On Nets as Brooklyn tries to claim their playoff spot amidst a very, very tough closing schedule. We go to Atlanta to speak with Brad Rowland of Locked On Hawks about Trey Young's surge and the foundation of a very good young team. And lastly, we speak to Ben Dubose of Locked On Rockets about the Houston uh, recent form, James Harden's ridiculous performance, and whether he is the MVP or not. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys and welcome to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. The playoffs, we're only a couple of weeks away from them starting. Some storylines across the NBA, even with the teams not in the playoffs, some big performances, some interesting talking points. We're going to talk about all of that today. So let's get to it. Now I'm joined by one of the hosts of the Locked On Nets podcast, a team which seems, I guess, at this point destined uh, or hopefully destined to uh, make the playoffs, at least from his perspective. It is Josh Bass. Josh, how are you feeling and how are the Nets community feeling about this playoff push? We know that the Nets have got an absolutely brutal upcoming schedule. They currently sit in the seventh seed, uh, a game and a half ahead of the Miami Heat and two and a half games ahead of the Orlando Magic in the ninth spot. How's the confidence? Josh, you know, the confidence is good. I think that uh, we are cautiously optimistic, like you mentioned. Right now, the Nets sit a game and a half in front of Miami for the eighth seed and then two and a half in front of Orlando. They do have the tiebreaker on, on Orlando. And, you know, these crazy wins over Sacramento and then the Lakers, if the Nets had lost one of those two games, I think we'd be feeling a lot more nervous. But just given their schedule coming up and hopefully Milwaukee is able to lock up that one seed in pretty short order, the Nets have two games coming up. Uh, against them in about a week or so and then obviously I think it's going to come down to that real final game of the season against Miami but I I think honestly two if the Nets go two and six these next eight games at 40 and 42 it's going to be a thin margin but I think they'd still get get into the playoffs so they do have a lot of room to work with. That is the risk. There is. You say they could go two and six that they could realistically go oh and eight now that seems unlikely Mm -hmm. but they've got the Blazers and the Sixers on the road then they have Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto, Milwaukee, Indiana on the road. Uh, there's a Milwaukee on the road in there as well. And then they finish off the season against the Heat, which could be the game that, that does decide how these uh, playoff spot runs. But you could say that, and I think it'd be fair to say that they are probably not favored in any of those games, perhaps except for the Miami game at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. They're going to come in as underdogs in all of those games. That's what getting that uh, Lakers win and the Kings win is, is all the more important. But it, it is going to be a, a tough run. They've got that little bit of a buffer at the moment. But if e- either the Heat or the Magic go on any sort of a, a win streak, it is going to make it tight. Oh, absolutely. And I think the Magic, has ha- they've had such an easy schedule the last few games. Uh, they're on a four-game winning streak, but now their schedule is going to start getting a bit tougher. 
against Philly, Miami, Detroit, Indiana, Toronto are their next five. That's not that's not easy. If they go two and three, I think that's pretty good for them. So, you know, the Nets are going to have to rely on other teams beating uh, the Miamis out there, beating the Orlandos, beating the Detroits. And it's not the position you want them to be in, um, but they have surprised us this whole season. I don't think anyone thought, myself included, that they'd be 38 and 36 this far into the season. So it's been a wild ride. And, and you know, at this point, I would give them kind of an 80, 85 percent chance of at least making it to the playoffs. And hopefully they can even be uh, a seven seed just because they match up so terribly with Milwaukee. How important is it for this team to make the playoffs? We know the struggles over the past four or five seasons following the Boston trade, the lack of draft picks. And how important is it for this team, even if they do just squeak in by half a game or a game into the into the eighth seed and, the, and they get waxed 4-0 in the first round by the Bucs, as you said, not, not a great matchup. But is that you know, really important for them to make themselves and push into the playoffs? You're heading into an offseason where they do have their draft pick. Things are turning around. Momentum is coming. Is that is, – is it – is it vital or is it just uh, an added bonus? You know, it's it's kind of bo- it's a credentializer, I think, for for free agents especially. The Nets are going to be an attractive destination no matter what because they have a really smart management team in place. D'Angelo Russell has taken a leap this year. Um, really good role players like Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, draft capital moving forward, and obviously a big market. But being able to make the playoffs, especially when you have no expectations coming into the season of doing so, it's a nice little uh, added win, especially for Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson, to tell free agents that they are building something special uh, in Brooklyn. And I think also it's going to help generate more casual fan excitement, hopefully sway some of those fans uh, away from the Knicks to the Nets, because as Nets fans, we are the little brother. We are very petty. Uh, so continuing to in Brooklyn is going to be huge for us. So I think it is important, especially with how far they've come this year, to get into the playoffs. At this point, it would be a disappointment if they were to go one and seven the rest of the way and, and just barely miss it. We know that they had that you know, terrible injury earlier in this season to Karis LeVert, but they are getting healthy at the moment. The only injury uh, really that they're dealing with is Alan Crabb with this knee, which the way that things are running with Crabb at the moment, it feels like it's going to be something that bothers him throughout the rest of his career. It's not really a specific injury. It's just like a soreness in his knee that kept him out for multiple weeks at the start of the 2009 portion of this season. He's out again now, but Levert is back. I want to concentrate a little bit on him because at the start of the season, Josh, he was the Nets' best player. He has uh, been usurped by D'Angelo Russell. Uh, is Levert struggling at, at the moment as much as it appears that he is? Yeah, no, he's been stirred by D'Angelo Russell, Spencer Dinwiddie, Damari Carroll. You can name half the roster at this point because he has been so bad since coming back from injury. And when someone has something as, as horrific that happened to him, uh, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and the, the time to really recover. But at this point, it's been uh, about 16, 17 games. He's shooting, I think, 34% from the field and 24% from three since his return. And there's no, there's no way about it. He's been one of the worst players in the league on offense since coming back. And you know, I think he will eventually um, realize the potential he showed at the beginning of the season. I don't think it's going to be this year. I don't think that after 15 or so games of playing this horribly, you're going to wake up all of a sudden and return to your form. I think he's going to need a whole offseason to get back in the gym, um, work on his three-point shot, which even earlier in the season was very wayward. Um, think, Kind of work on his body, finishing at the basket. Um, but when you look at this Nets team right now, he's not someone they can rely on because he's just so inconsistent compared to D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie who are putting up um, productive nights, night after night, and really leading the Nets. And, and one of those two guys has been on fire pretty much every game uh, dating back the last, kind of since Dinwiddie returned from his thumb injury. I want to ask you one last question here before before I let you go, Josh. 
the importance of someone like Jared Dudley, who is renowned around the NBA as an excellent team guy, a great help in culture building, um, you know, constantly getting out on Twitter, social media, going on podcasts, and and hyping up his guys, talking about you know, the strength of this team in the locker room that he probably set the tone of majority. Now he has, yeah, he started for big chunks of the season. He's been uh, got injured, and the role was taken over by Trevion Graham, and now by Rodion's Kurooks as well. But the importance of what Dudley brings isn't really on the court, is it? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because he he's kind of that hype man for the Nets. I think I saw something earlier this year on Twitter where um, talking about how well the Nets take care of their guys. Um, their guys' families and making sure they're all provided for. And I think someone responded saying, isn't that commonplace? And he said, no, we didn't have it in Phoenix. The Nets are really a, a best-in-class organization. And it's something so little uh, as that, but just kind of promoting the team, ensuring that everyone from agents to free agents kind of know how good the Nets have uh, been treating their players and, and the culture they are building. Um, and then on the court, you know, his production doesn't really, he doesn't have much production. He played against the Lakers, uh, 17 minutes, scored, didn't score, didn't have a rebound, only had two assists. But while he was out there, it just makes everyone feel more comfortable. He's the quarterback on defense yelling at Jared Allen and everyone else where they should be, making smart rotations. So even though he's not putting up any box score stats, I mean, you look at the other Nets forwards, you have Ronda Halvis Jefferson, who besides his great game in Sacramento is a severely flawed player. Travion Graham can't hit a shot. You have Damari Carroll, who's the most consistent guy. Um, Rody Kuritz is inconsistent as well. So really, J- they need Jared Dudley to play just because he's not going to take anything off the table. Um, but definitely his main value has been as that kind of coach and leader to the younger players. Well, it is going to be intriguing to see uh, how Brooklyn runs over this uh, last nightmare stretcher of eight games. I think the majority of people outside of Orlando and Miami fans are really hoping that Brooklyn can make it <laughs> yes. into the playoffs and uh, and turn things around after that disastrous run, which uh, was self-inflicted, but not self-inflicted by the people who are currently there at the moment. So, Josh, we're going to be uh, tuning in to Locked on Nets to hear the uh, push for the playoffs and uh, hopefully the, uh, the playoff success or at least the appearance in the playoffs of this Brooklyn Nets team. Thanks for jumping on. Locked on NBA. Yeah, Josh, I hope so too. Thanks for having me on. Remember to get this show every day by subscribing to Locked on NBA on the new Himalaya podcast app. It's an ever-expanding podcast world. You need Himalaya with their personally curated playlists and new features every day. Download Himalaya at your app store and subscribe to Locked on NBA. Now it's time to bring in the host of the Locked On Hawks podcast, Brad Rowland, is here. We're here to talk about a team that they're not going to make the playoffs. We're all well aware of that. But the Atlanta Hawks showing, you know, this is about as good, Brad, as you can expect for a rebuilding season. The signs that all the young players are showing, the uh, progression, the uh, competitiveness, the big wins down the stretch. It really is the most positive losing season you could possibly have hoped for. I totally agree. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. It's a it's a, a team that's they play entertaining basketball, which is always nice to see. Like it's obviously good to have young talent and intriguing talent and have a clean cap sheet and all the things that you would want in a rebuild and future picks and all that. But also just playing entertaining basketball really helps. Um, just in terms of just having to watch this team all the time. But yeah, a lot of good players, quality player development, quality coaching staff, and uh, the pieces are definitely in place. Yeah, most of their players are, are 25 and under that are it, producing the majority of these results. The the uh, I guess the exceptions there are uh, Dwayne Dedman, who's going to be turning 30 in a few months. Vince Carter, who's going to be t- turning 75 in uh, in a few weeks' time. 
I believe, and, uh, and Kent Bazemore, who's really just a bit part player at this point. But we're talking about John Collins and Trey Young and, and Torian Prince coming back from injury, Kevin Herter, DeAndre Bembry doing his bit, even you know, guys like uh, Jalen Adams taking over the backup point guard role in providing just value and showing what, what can uh, yeah, be done when, when things are developed in the right way. But I do want to focus mainly here, Brad, on Trey Young, who's been yeah, really fantastic over the last two, three months or so, averaging almost 24 points per game over the last two months of action, almost nine assists. And after that dreadful start to the season, we're seeing the shooting really start to catch fire. And there were some legitimate concerns because the second half of his season in Oklahoma, the percentages were way down. The start of his NBA career, they were at, at a, a cratering type of level that were always going to come up from there. But this is a really encouraging for what Trey has been able to do over these you know, basically December onwards period in the NBA. For sure, you know, so you mentioned December. He had the really rough November. Actually, started out pretty well. I think people kind of kind of forgot that he had a really good October, yep. <laughs> which is a very small month, of course, in the NBA. But he kind of created in November. But since then, since December first, he's averaging I think it's like twenty and eight on really solid shooting, forty three percent from the floor, thirty eight percent from three almost, and gets the line a pretty decent amount and makes about eighty two percent of those. So, yeah, the efficiency has been there. I, you know, the, this recent stretch where he's averaging closer to 25 and 10, I don't, I'm not sure I buy that necessarily because it's just tough to buy that on a large sample till you see it in a large sample. But the, you know, 50 games or so now since December 1st, he's been a, you know, very, very, very good player offensively. You know, the stuff that doesn't necessarily matter for fantasy purposes, the de- the defensive stuff is still concerning. But offensively, he's been the engine. He's been the team. He's been the team's um, focal point offensively every night of the season. He's played every single game. He's been durable. And uh, the uptick in scoring, um, free, throw, free throw rate, and also just the fact that he's making threes makes for a pretty lethal combination. You touched on the defensive stuff. I guess some people have some concerns with this Hawks team as they're two young, your main core pieces at the moment are Young and John Collins, two guys who do have their struggles on the defensive end. Do you see there's any way, and Trey has been by some metrics one of the worst defensive guards in the league or defensive players in the league. Can these two form uh, at least you know, parts of an, of an average defense as this team moves forward? It doesn't really matter for the next one season, two seasons, three seasons, but moving forward, are there things that we see in Trey's game in particular where he can at least be able to you know, hold steady rather than be a, a complete sieve uh, versus a, a dominating player? Like, can he get to an average level of defense? Yeah, that, that's definitely the biggest question I think right now, long term. You know, you're you're right to say that you know the next year or two doesn't matter all that much in terms of putting this team together. But if you're if you're rebuilding the team and you're trying to aim high. You're probably thinking about, you know, what's the team going to be like when you're trying to compete for a title, when you're a top five team in the league kind of thing in an ultimate best case scenario. And that kind of can expose you because in the playoffs, if you have a bad defender, you know, you probably have one defender on the, on the floor that gets beat up. But if you have more than one, you're in some serious trouble uh, at the end of the playoffs. So um, having those two guys not be strengths. I, and I will say, you know, Young is a lot worse than Collins. Um, the argument on the flip side of that, though, is that Collins plays a position where defense is more important than at point guard. Um, Trey Young is never going to be a good defender. I think there's a way for him to be less damaging than he is now. And I think even recently he's been a little bit better than he was early in the season. I think he's starting to figure some stuff out defensively. But with that said, he's never going to be good. It's just kind of a situation where can he hold up? Can he not get get, get picked on too, too much? And I think there's at least a, a window into that. It's possible that he's okay enough to where it's not just this glaring weakness, especially when he's so good offensively that it covers up for a lot of ills. Um, with Collins... 
you know, he's been a little bit better recently as well, and the team's been better as a result of that. But he, you know, weirdly, even though he's better than Young now, he's probably more of a concern defensively long term for me because you just need him to be better. You you can kind of get by with Young not being great at the point of attack with some with some coverage stuff. But if you have a big, um, a combo big, you know, a, a four or five guy who can play both spots, if that guy can't can't defend, it's really hard to pl- to pair that guy with a perfect complement because Collins is really good on offense and he's really athletic. But um, moving forward. The Hawks have to build around the two of them at a, at a bare minimum with some solid defensive players. You know, Kevin Herter could be a two-way guy, but not going to be a dominating defensive presence. So if you factor him in as the number three guy, they really need defense in the other two spots, and that's going to be a team-building concern for them moving forward. We'll get back to Collins in a sec. Just want to touch one more thing on, on Trey Young. We've seen a few players come out over the past 24 hours, Donovan Mitchell, Kyle Kuzma, and Blake Griffin, yeah, emphatically stating that they think that Trey Young is the rookie of the year. Brad, as someone who covers this team, do you hold that same view? I do not. Um, and I've gotten a lot of heat, actually, the last <laughs> couple of days, You know, probably, probably all season long, but I am someone who tries to cover the team as objectively as possible. I did grow up a Hawks fan, so I, I get it. I grew, I grew up here, but I'm sort of transitioning into that media area now where I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible. And I just don't think I would vote for Trey Young right now. You know, he's made it a lot closer than it was a month ago. I will say that. You know, Luca hasn't been quite as efficient as he was early, and Trey's been so good that it's become, I guess, more of a conversation. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's that close still, um, full season wise, mostly because of November. If you were to start the race on December 1st, it would be a lot of fun. And that was kind of what I tweeted actually earlier today and got, got a lot of. Uh, heat from Hawks fans and it wasn't really a shot at young. It's just that, you know, that happened that event, that, that bad November did happen and it all counts. So if you look at the full season of work, Doncic's profile is just better. He's been, you know, all the, all the advanced stats are towards him. Um, Young's been great. Again, it's been a successful season by any measure for Trey Young as a rookie. Um, Lucas just been better from start to finish. Um, again, if you wanted to pare it down to a half season or so, then it might be pretty darn close because Trey's been that good. But full season wise, I, I'd have to go with Luca. Yeah, that's that's the way I see it as well. And you can, yeah, if you were yeah, judging it, even just the 2019 portion of the season, you could make an argument. Perhaps either way, I'd still probably go with Doncic, but. You can make that argument, but you can't discount the first six weeks, eight weeks of the season. Um, yeah, it's all it's all played through, and it's not like it's not like uh, Young has had a, a significantly dominating performance over Doncic because Doncic has still been pretty good. He's had some wear down factors, and some of the efficiency has dropped off, but he's still been really good during this stretch here. So I, I do agree with that. Now, one thing on Collins, back to his defense, I've noticed it's taken a step backwards this season, which is not something you want to see. As a uh, as a young player improving in the NBA, when defense is something that generally progresses on, on a not linear basis, but generally as you get more accustomed to the NBA, that improves. Now, do you think a that 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 assessment is correct that his defense is taking a step back, and b how much of that step back do you attribute to the fact that he missed so much time to begin the season with that ankle injury? I think that's probably part of it, and uh, the last month or so. At least his counting numbers have been a little bit better. That was it was kind of um, almost hilarious how yeah. bad his block and steal rates were for about three months. Um, and he just you know as a, a guy who's that who is as athletic as he is should just be better than that. I don't think he's ever going to be a great defender, but the fact that he was just like I, I think he went an entire month without get, without getting a single steal, and like that's impossible <laughs> almost um, for someone as talented as he is. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's accurate to say it's been a little bit of a step back. I think it might not be as big a step back as the numbers would paint it to be, but at the same time, like he's going to have to be better. It's been, there's been some nice signs the last, I would say, two three weeks now as he sort of gets a little bit more dialed in. A lot of it's acumen stuff. You know, he has some, 
He does have some physical limitations if you're playing him at center. Um, at power forward, he's huge in today's NBA. Like he's definitely a very old school power forward. Like 15 years ago, he would have been like a power forward for sure. And now I think of him more of as, as, as a center. But the Hawks are playing with the four most of the time, and there he holds up most of the time. It's just a situation where if you get somebody that's more of a hybrid 3-4 on him, he might have some trouble in space. But he's a really big physical player at the four. When he plays the five, you know he's got to be able to protect the rim and defensive rebound. He's great on the offensive glass. He's not that great on, on the defensive glass. He's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a situation where he's definitely not been great defensively. It's been a little bit disconcerting, but it's a new scheme. He had the injury. Um, the team around him is pretty bad as well. It's not just him. Like It's not a situation where he's um, surrounded by all this great defensive talent either. You have Young. You have Herter, who's still a rookie. You have Torian Prince, who's really struggled defensively this season, etc. So you know, it's not been a great, great situation in the world. I do think that he's going to have to get better, though, and it wasn't necessarily the greatest step forward in year two. Well, it is going to be interesting to see how things play out for this Hawks team, not only down the stretch of this season, but in the draft with potential two you know, high picks coming, free agency, all that sort of stuff as they continue to develop and we see these guys you know, blossom in their NBA careers. Brad, we'll have that all for you on Locked On Hawks. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. Oh, never a problem. Always happy to do it and uh, always enjoy your work, my friend. Now let's bring in the host of the Locked On Rockets podcast. Ben DuBose is here, fresh off a big Rockets victory over the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, ben, I'll start with one question for you, and this is probably not an easy question, but in, in your mind, is uh, James Harden the MVP? Yes. Yep. It really is that simple. <laughs> I know it's a one-word answer. I just, no disrespect to Giannis, when you have a front row seat to what Harden has done, especially given the wave of injuries, and I know there are some that say that every team has injuries. Yes, that's true to an extent, but with three of the Rockets' top four options, Chris Paul, Clint Capella, Eric Gordon, all missing extended time, the hangover effect, which, yes, it does at least partially fall on James Harden's shoulders as well, the 11-14 and 14 start to the year, all that kind of stuff. But to overcome it, to be 20 games over, tied for the number three spot in the West, to be where they are in the standings, poised to break 50 yet again, given the fact that they are competitive enough from a standing standpoint, I would say that even though Milwaukee is going to win upper 50s to near 60 games, it doesn't offset to me the reality that 10 years from now, Josh, when we're talking about the 2019 NBA season, we're going to be talking about James Harden. So no disrespect to Giannis. I know best player, best team has been the tiebreaker lots of times in the past. So if he does win, I don't think it's some grave injustice by any means. That said, I think in this case, the only question for what Harden was doing from a statistical standpoint was, was it all stats like, say, you know, Russell Westbrook a couple of years ago when he had the triple double, which was just an amazing statistical season, but the team was just sixth in the West and not really doing much mid forties and wins. Or would the Rockets get to enough of a level as a team to where it's not just the numbers? In my opinion, at this point, barring just a shocking falling apart at the end of the year, the Rockets have gotten to a point as a team to where it's enough to lift Harden over the finish line. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, in the third seed in the West, you know, to fight themselves back into this position, really on the back of what he's been doing. They're three games behind the Nuggets, so getting to the two seeds probably going to be a, a tough ask at this point in the season. But Harden has been ridiculous, you know, putting up so many 60-point you know, games, 50-point games. It's not just all about that, but he's he's contributing in other areas as well and really carrying this team with with a huge, huge load. So I, I do tend to agree with you, but I also agree with you when, when talking about you know, if Giannis does get the award, I don't think there's any egregious fault in that. 
that. I can totally understand that, even though I'm not someone who you know, buys into the best player on best team default argument. I can totally see it with the way that Giannis has played. Um, one thing that is interesting with the way the Rockets are playing, they're still surging, they're still pushing, they're pushing up into that home court advantage in the first round uh, of the playoffs. But Mike D'Antoni is doing something that we don't normally see from him, and that's resting rotation players. We saw Eric Gordon have a day off uh, during the week. We've seen Kenneth Freed and Austin Rivers sort of come in and out of the rotation. We see Daniel House, who hasn't played for about five months as part of this team, come in and play 30 minutes a night to just spell guys here. Is this any sort of acknowledgement from Dan Tony that some of his you know high high volume um, playing style over the past couple of seasons and his refusal to expand rotations and give guys rest um, may have contributed to some of the playoff issues? A little bit, perhaps, but I think a lot of it, they honestly do not know. They're at a rare point with how deep they are. There are 11 potential rotation players that they have, the five starters. And I think at this point, I think it's safe to assume that Eric Gordon's going to stay as the starting three, although you never know. But then you've got your bench with Rivers, Shumpert, Green, House, Freed, and Nene. And for any NBA coach, even guys with longer benches, nobody plays more than nine in the playoffs. So some of this, they are genuinely trying to figure out who's going to play. And of course, Gordon's safe. I think it's the guys at the end of the bench. You know, they sat Rivers and Freed on Friday. Tonight in New Orleans, they sat uh, Gerald Green and Nene. But it's Freed and Nene, how and when they use those two as the backup five. It's also, you know, your wings. You're probably going to have Daniel House, even though he had an off game Friday. He's been good enough. But between House... Rivers, Shumpert, Green, not all of those guys are going to play. So I think to some degree it's acknowledging what's happened in the past and they want to keep Harden and Gordon fresh. I think uh, certainly Chris Paul too, that's valid. But I think the other part is that they still do not have a good handle on exactly who the final nine are going to be once they open up the playoffs against uh, whoever it ends up being. So when we look at the the back end of the Western Conference standings, you have the Clippers in five, the Thunder in six, the Jazz in seven, and the Spurs in eight at the moment. And there is some room for those guys to flip there. There's only one game difference between the fifth seed Clippers and the uh, eighth seed Spurs. Is there any team there that the Rockets would match up best against, or conversely, who they would look to, you know, in your opinion, look to uh, avoid or prefer to avoid? I would say the best matchups to me feel like the Spurs and the Jazz. Of the two, I would say the Spurs are most preferable. Now, they've actually played the Jazz the best. It's just the Jazz defensively, they can really tax you. It's just against the Rockets, and this goes back to the playoffs, but also this year, the Jazz really have a problem getting into gear on the offensive end against Houston. I'm not sure why that is, because this year in particular, the Rockets have not been nearly as good of a defensive team, obviously, but just for multiple years now, the Jazz offensively have not gotten into gear against the Rockets. Their lack of creators really stands out. The Spurs, I mean, I know Harden had 61 on Friday, but you go back to the earlier matchups, his offensive rating against San Antonio this year, I don't have it right in front of me, but it is obscene. They just don't really have a run protector or a perimeter guy that you can trust to stop James Harden. And if you can't slow James Harden, if you can't take away the Rockets' plan A, I know there's Greg Popovich, but to me, that's the most friendly. I'm less keen on the Clippers and the Thunder. I'd say the Thunder least just because, you know, the ace in the whole card that the Rockets feel like they have against every other team other than probably the Warriors is that, you know, if it's a close game in the last five minutes, then James Harden just has a gear that other players aren't going to be able to get to. And he can steal you a win, even if it's tight. The Thunder are the one team, if they're healthy, and they've had their issues, but between Paul George and Russell Westbrook, they have the type of guys to where Harden might not in every single game be far and away the best player. So I'd say they're the, they're the scariest. And also the Clippers, just because 
they've been incredibly well coached. But the other thing is, Josh, between the former Rockets on that Clippers team and in that rotation, Pat Beverly, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, it's one you know good and well that the Clippers would be incredibly up for that challenge. I think over seven games, Houston is the better team. But for a Rockets team that has their eyes on a prize much more than getting through first round, I could see the Clippers making them expend a lot more energy than I think a team that wants to go uh, four rounds would like to expend. It is going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and see what happens with this MVP race. And um, you know, if the, the Rockets and James Harden and Chris Paul can, I guess, exercise some of the uh, perceived and real uh, playoff demons that have uh, occurred over the uh, course of their careers, Ben will have that for you over on Locked On Rockets. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. No problem. Thanks for having me, Josh. And that does it for another episode of Locked On NBA. Make sure you are subscribing to this podcast on the new Himalaya podcast app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. And when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play the podcast Locked On NBA. Follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore b Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.